Um, we have been going through the Ten Commandments. We have been talking about how the Ten Commandments not only are an expression of um, where we will find freedom. You remember they start out, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery, out of the land of Egypt. And he doesn't give us then ten laws to put us back into slavery. But he says, here's what I made you for. Here's how you will live. Here's what human flourishing looks like. And we also talked about how the Ten Commandments are given not just in Exodus chapter 20, but also in Deuteronomy chapter 5, right before God's people are about to enter into the Promised Land. God's people who have been living in unbelief and arguing and rebelling and fighting with Moses, they don't know how to get along. And so God reiterates for them the Ten Commandments. So we are looking at them really from that second giving and considering this idea which I picked up from a Eugene Peterson book, but I've found very helpful to think about how the Ten Commandments teach us how to live in community. And this issue of what we do with our sexuality is huge in this. It's huge in, in this, this whole idea. And you see it talked about a lot in the Bible uh, with regard to community, but I guess the reason it's so important to understand this commandment to live in true community is because this commandment teaches us so much about what we were ultimately made for and about what a relationship with God is like. And I've said before, and I'll say it again to make sure we all understand this, there is no issue that you have on a horizontal level with other people that doesn't reflect and doesn't flow out of the relationship you have with God. The horizontal and the vertical are always connected. Sometimes we, we just are like spinning our wheels Trying to, trying to get better, trying to be different, because we're just considering issues on the horizontal level. But we always have to be connecting it back to God. And the Bible does that time and time again. There's a passage in Proverbs chapter 5 that I thought would be helpful to read as we consider this commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And it's at the top of your, of your paper. So if you would read with me Proverbs chapter 5, or follow along, I'm going to read. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love, why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him. The cords of his sin hold him fast. He will die for lack of discipline, led astray by his own great folly. Let's pray together. Lord, the scripture talks about being satisfied and about dying. And we get the sense, Lord, that this is a very serious subject. It's also a subject that we all come to with baggage. From our culture, from our hearts, from our experiences. Lord, all of us come to this, this topic as broken, needy people who were made for intimacy of the deepest, richest sort and yet who have squandered that longing for intimacy in so many ways, in so many places. We pray, Lord, that not only will you heal us through the preaching of your word and the preaching of your gospel, that you would give us 
such a vision for what we were made for and what you've designed us for and what you intend community to be about that we would not be satisfied when, with less than what you are committed to bringing about in our lives and in our community. We pray, Lord, that we could understand what sex is about so that we could honor you with our bodies and our longings, our desires. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Obviously, a lot of stuff I'm going to go through here. So you're going to have to hang on. Because there's so much to talk about with this topic. Um, I think it was last spring, was last spring or last fall, did a whole series, whole semester on gospel-driven relationships. All right? So to have to, you know, one night to be able to talk about sex is kind of unfair. Um, but be that as may, that's what we have tonight. Because next week we have to talk about stealing and illegal downloading and all that kind of stuff. And that'll be fun too, right? <sighs> Nobody's going nobody's gonna to come. I don't know which people feel more guilty about. Um, I can say the word masturbation, and most everybody will look down on the ground. Um, usually whenever you're talking to a group of college students, um, I've had that experience for many years. I've been doing this for a long time. Um, I think illegal downloading is you know, ranking up there right now, too. You know, can, look, can I look you in the eye and we can talk about that? We'll find out next week. Um, so uh, to understand what the Bible has to say about sex, and to understand... This commandment, you shall not commit adultery, you really need to understand what sex is all about and where it comes from and why God created it. Because, you see, too often the tone of a lot of Christian teaching on sex, a lot of what you guys, um, if you've grown up in a church, have probably heard, talks about sex are often negative in their tone. They're often from fearful parents and fearful youth leaders trying to get kids to to sort of not, you know, open up the cookie jar and explore what's in there too soon, right? And it's like, you know, if we can just get them to hold off, if we can just browbeat them or scare them or whatever it takes, you know, then, our, then you know, hopefully that, you know, things will go better for our, for our youth. Uh, and, and so we end up, in some ways, a lot of times, leaving out one of the most important aspects of what the Bible has to say about sex. And when we do that, we actually distort what the Christian understanding of reality is all about. So it's a pretty big deal that we understand that God made sex and he's thrilled with it. He thinks it's a good thing and a wonderful thing. You have to understand the positive before you can make sense of the negative. The Bible is pro-sex. It's pro-sex. It's, um, it, it revels in the glory of sex. There's a whole book devoted to it. Now Christians actually have had trouble knowing what to do with the Song of Solomon at times. Some people said, well, it's merely an analogy of Christ's love for the church. I don't think it's, I think it's first and foremost a poem about sex and about marital love. But of course, the Bible says that marital love is connected to what God made us for, this ultimate relationship that he created us for. So nothing is ever just about sex. Nothing is ever just about marital love. And yet, to spiritualize it away... I think reflects that a lot of Christians have been uncomfortable with how unabashedly pro-sex the Bible really is. And it is. Remember, you know, God created sex and he pronounced it a good thing. In a nutshell, the Bible teaches that God created sex as a way for you to say to one other person, I belong to you exclusively. Totally, completely, and permanently. Now that's what God, the Bible is consistent in saying that that's what 
God created sex for. But beyond that, it actually goes even farther than that and talks about how sex is actually a shadow or an analogy of what God created us for with himself. In other words, you see often one of the most common ways that God talks about his people turning away from them, from him is to regard them as spiritual adulterers. Right? There's a pastor that lives here in town that wrote a whole book on the subject of whoredom. It's the title of the book, Whoredom, because you could write a whole book on that topic. And what that teaches us about what we were made for and how at the very heart of reality from the Christian perspective is that reality is about intimacy and is about personal relationships. Right? In a nutshell, the Bible teaches that God created sex as a way for you to say to one person, I belong to you completely, exclusively, and permanently because he created you to hear that from him and to say that to him. He created sex so that you would begin to get an understanding of what you were ultimately made for. This is why Paul in Ephesians 5 starts talking about marital love and what it's like. And he says, you know, I'm really, I'm really talking about the relationship of Christ and the believer. In other words, what Ephesians 5 is saying is that God created sex to teach us about the love that God has for his bride, for his people. He didn't look around and say, wow, these people are really attracted to one another. Huh, I think I can work with that. I can use that. It's a great illustration there. No, it's just the opposite. God created sex. It's a shadow of the relationship that you would have with God, which is to be naked and vulnerable and safe and secure, which is to be a whole-souled commitment where you give yourself to God fully, exclusively, right? You remember you know, the beginning of the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other God before me. God is saying the same thing to us through this commandment. You're to have no other God but me. And one of the ways I'm going to teach you about your, how you were made for an exclusive commitment that is open and vulnerable and real and honest and all the things that you long for is by giving you an experience that is but a shadow and yet a significant shadow of what I made you for. See, the Christian view of sex is a really high and glorious view, glorious view of sex. Paul, the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 6, goes so far as to say, whenever you have sex, you are uniting yourself with someone. It is a uniting act. Like it or not, it's what God made it to say. We try to to make it say other things in our culture, but it won't work. As Tim Keller said, said once, I think wisely, when we break God's laws, they break us because the one who made us is the one who tells us, this is what I made you for. This is how I made you to live. Now look at this. It's so fascinating. God commands that we would be delighted with sex. I mean, look, look at this. Um, may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. That, that passage that we read from Proverbs 5. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. That's strong stuff. That's, it, it, it's, not, it's not weak. It's not wimpy. The Bible says you should, be, you should be delighted by sex. And while some Christians, even some very significant, famous Christians like St. Augustine, have been very prudish in their view about sex. 
the Bible is not prudish in its view about sex. What does it say about the purpose of sex? It's threefold. This is important because not all Christians have understood this rightly. The purpose of sex, biblically speaking, is threefold. It's to procreate the race. It's to bear children. Now, the, the, the Catholic Church, unfortunately, sees this as the sole purpose. And thus, you know, it explains their um, resistance to birth control. If you grew up Catholic and you always wondered why that is, it's because they say the purpose of sex is to produce children. So if you have sex and it's not about producing children, that you're, do, you're going against the purpose of sex. But most Christians um, outside the Catholic Church have said, no, that's too narrow a view. The Bible actually speaks of sex not just for producing children, but also for fun, like here, Proverbs 5. You know, delighting in the breast of your wife is not about propagating the race necessarily or directly. I know, you know, I know the anatomy and it has some, you know, effect and whatnot, but it's not the point. The point here in Proverbs 5 is more than just procreation. It's enjoy this. Delight in her. Delight in her, in her physical anatomy. Right? Sex is good and it's enjoyable. As a matter of fact, in 1 Timothy 4, 1 Timothy 4, the Apostle Paul who everybody thinks of as being kind of prudish and harsh in various ways, actually says it's a doctrine of demons to teach people not to marry. There were people in Paul's day who said it's more spiritual to not have sex. The reason they thought that is because in the first century it was very popular. Plato taught this, and a lot of people in the first century thought that the body was evil, that physicalness was somehow not very good. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians have been influenced by that over the centuries and have fallen away from the clear biblical teaching that to, that to say that sex is not a good thing is a doctrine of demons. That's about the strongest language that Paul uses in any of his letters. I remember in a seminary class, you know, 100 guys studying to be pastors, and, um, you know, the professor asked, what, what does Paul call a doctrine of demons in his letters? And people kind of raised their hand, tried out different. Nobody got it right. We don't read 1 Timothy 4 very much. I don't know why. It's a doctrine of demons to teach people to abstain from sex and to abstain from certain foods, Paul says, that God created to be received with thanksgiving. So the Bible, is, is, it says sex is fun, and you shouldn't call it an evil thing. It's a good thing. Now, you know, it, it's, it's fascinating. There's one other point, though, and that's, that's this. The third purpose of sex is bonding. Genesis chapter 2 says that, um, that, that, we will become, that man and wife will be one flesh. And it goes beyond just the physical. This is where you get into that whole souled commitment. Giving yourself to someone is what you were made for. Um, I, I have a couple quotes here that I found helpful. A guy named Larry Richards puts it well. He says, God didn't create sex to show affection. He invented it to seal commitment. Now, I know in our culture, a lot of times we use sexuality and sexual expression to say, I think you're hot, I like you. We use it for a lot to say things like that. But God actually created it to say, I'm committed to you. This is one of the, this is one of the deep tensions that, that we live in in our culture is sex is a united act, like it or not. It's a way to, to cement relationships Tim Keller goes so far as to call it covenant cement, which is why Paul, the Apostle Paul, says that even a husband and a wife aren't allowed to decide to quit having sex. You know, he says that in one of his letters. He says, you're not allowed to deprive each other of sex um, except by mutual consent and only then for a season. 
He says this in 1 Corinthians. You might say, well, that seems kind of strange. Can't you, don't you have the right to decide you don't want to have sex anymore with your spouse? The Bible says no. You don't have a right because marriage is about a whole-souled commitment. And one of the things that God has given you to seal that commitment and to build it, one of the things God has given you to teach you how to trust and to open yourself up is your sexuality. And to cut that out of marriage ends up, you know, now I know there are some marriages where it's not physically possible, but to cut it out intentionally is to go at cross purposes to what marriage is to be about. It's about bonding. And you know this is true because if, if, if you've ever had sex, and I expect that probably some of you have in this room, I, you know, statistics or any, anything, you know, if you can remember, that you felt married. There's no other way to say it. I mean, you can try to tell yourself that it doesn't matter. You can try to tell yourself that one night stands are fine, whatnot. You can listen to the, you know, F, you know, the anthropologists who want to tell you that it's just, you know, it's natural for men to want to spread their seed as far as possible. The fact is, when you have sex, you feel married. You do, because it's what God built into it. Like it or not. It's why brokenness in this area hurts so deeply. Because, it, you know, it's one of God's greatest gifts. And therefore, when it gets twisted, it ends up reaching into some of the deepest places of our heart. There are two words, you know, in Hebrew for sex. And the Bible always uses this word, yada, to know, which means to know for sex and marriage. You see that in some of the older translations. The King James says that Adam knew Eve and she became uh, with child. And it's that word, to know. In other words, at the heart of sex is this idea of intimacy and knowing at the deepest part of your being. And of course, it's why you know, most sexual problems in marriage really are about communication problems. They're always relationship problems. They're never just about sex. Sex is never just about sex. It's why, you know, if I could just take this little tangent, it's why, even if God didn't say it was wrong to marry a non-Christian, for a Christian to marry a non-Christian, it's why it would make perfect sense. I mean, he does say that. I can show you passages where he does say that. But listen, a non-Christian will never understand a Christian. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that spiritual things can only be discerned by people who have the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that you can't have good relationships with people who aren't believers. I'm not saying that. But there is a core level of you, if you're a Christian, that, that, that is known in a, in a different way than anybody else will know you. And there's, there's a connection to that that only another believer can own, can know. Tim Keller puts it this way, you know, that you, know, you can only give yourself part way to someone who's not a believer that doesn't share that intimate relationship at the deepest level of your being. And, and you know that. I think we know that. So, you know, let me just say a couple more things, getting at this idea of some problems with sex outside of marriage. I think I've said this already, but just to, to reiterate, it, it, it violates the intrinsic meaning of sex. Why does the Bible say, do not commit adultery? It's not because God is saying, I don't want you to have fun. I just showed you. First Timothy 4 says, the doctrine of demons to teach that sex is bad. God is not anti-sex, but God understands because God created us to express sex within the covenant commitment of marriage. And to have sex outside of that covenant commitment ends up violating what sex is actually about and what sex is actually saying. 
This, in other words, what God created sex to say is, I'm committed to you. But whenever you have sex and you're not committed, really committed, there's this, there's this brokenness right at the heart of what's going on. You're using it to say something else. And pretty soon, pretty soon we're not sure what we're saying anymore. When you, when you use your sexuality um, in pornography or in masturbation, you're using it to say something else. You're not using it now to say, I'm committed to you, to an actual person. And, and it, gets, it gets confused. It's no wonder that it, that, it, that it breaks us because we're trying to make it say something that it can't say. You're saying, in a sense, you know, if you, if, if you want to have sex or outside of marriage, what you're saying is, you know, I, I, I'm committed to you at one level. I'm committed to being open and vulnerable to you physically, but I'm not willing to commit myself, for better or for worse, to what comes. I'm not, I'm not ready to commit myself at every level, and therefore, the sex can't be good. It can't be what it was made for, because it is to be about being open and vulnerable and unashamed in every level. There should be a correspondence between the physical and the emotional and the social and all of those things going together. It's what God designed it for. It, the, other, the other problem with sex outside of marriage, it really does damage your bonding apparatus. Now, understand that the gospel can heal and bring real healing and real wholeness. And there's not a person in this room that hasn't given their heart to something other than God. We talked about that already, right? We're all idolaters. John Calvin said that the human heart is an, human heart is an idol factory. You know, we don't need anybody to sort of hold up idols in front of us. We don't need anybody to hold up, you know, sexual objects in front of us. We make them up. We create them. You know, St. Jerome, I've told you the story about St. Jerome, the monk who went out into the desert, he said, to get away from from the, the, the pleasures of the flesh and the temptations of the flesh. And he said, I found myself surrounded by visions of naked dancing women. We don't, we don't need even external stimulus. It's in our heart. All that, all that garbage is in our heart. But, but there is something about entrusting to yourself over and over again and then having that not bring about fruition. And sometimes that's because of what you do. Sometimes it happens to you. But regardless... God has created your sexuality, even, even I, really, I think all of your sexual expression. You know, I mean, the Bible doesn't really say, well, you can do this, but you can't do this. The Bible says sexuality is for this, is for committing yourself. So I think you should think about who you kiss on. I do think you should think about holding hands and all of those things. The Bible does, you know, people are always saying, well, where's the line? What can we do? And we should not think of it that way. We should always be thinking of it in terms of, what am I communicating? Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Are you saying things with your body that you really aren't willing to say? And, you know, here we are, right, the generation that cares about authenticity. And yet at the same time, at, at one of the sort of most basic levels of what it means to be human, we live with such glaring inconsistencies in so many, in so many ways. And I wonder, it's no wonder that we long for authenticity. We long for it in others, but I wonder, do we really long for it in ourselves as much as we think? Um, turn, turn the page over. A couple, a couple wrong views. You know, there are two, two problems that Christians and non-Christians alike fall into when they think about sex. One is to despise it. And, and this can happen 
you know, because of, you know, the way you've been taught. It can also happen because you've had bad experiences. And to think that sex is, is a bad thing, is a disgusting thing, is a, um, to, to despise it. But on the other hand, you, you get a lot of people and a lot of um, even Christians who almost deify sex. Now, I said sex is good. The Bible says that. But listen, sex is more than just a biological function. And you know, you live in a culture that at one point wants to say that relationships are everything. Relationships are everything. But at the same time, they want to you know, argue that you can disconnect sex from relational intimacy. And it's no wonder that, that there are so many broken, lonely people. Uh, Marva Dawn, one of my favorite writers, says that our, our culture is so lonely and we're trying to fill we're trying to fill that, that hole of intimacy with sex. But just sex doesn't do it. it, it, it it's got to be in the context of this whole soul commitment that is real intimacy. Sex is more than just a biological function. There are a lot of you know, people, even in Paul's day, that thought you know, sex is a biological function just like eating. Just when you, like when you get hungry, you should have sex. It's a natural thing. And yet, you know, here's the interesting thing. It's more than just a natural thing. And there are things that sort of, you know, well up from within you, natural things, that may not actually be good for you. I, I, I you know, thinking Tim Keller uses this, this illustration about eating fatty foods or eating junk food. And I thought, that's a good illustration for me. Um, because I can testify to the fact that I have a natural desire to eat those sorts of things. But is that my sole criteria for whether I should eat that kind of junk all the time? No. Because I also know there's a natural reason not to eat that stuff all the time, which is the fact that it destroys my body. So just the fact that you feel within yourself, emanating from the deepest part of your heart, a desire to have sex, doesn't mean that it's to be gratified, because there may be very good reasons to not, to not pursue it in the way that you want to. Do you see what I'm saying? Just because it seems natural doesn't necessarily mean that it's what you should be doing. And, 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 and you know, the, the analogy, of course, is with food. It doesn't seem natural sometimes to exercise. There are lots of things, you know, where we could say, well, naturally it seems like this is right, and yet um, the reality is there are things that feel natural that can do great damage to us. Now, of course, you know, we know that sex is different than eating because we don't spend hours and hours looking at apple pies and Big Macs on the Internet, right? You know, I mean, people, I guess, you know, Bon Appetit is sort of like food pornography, but not really. You know, I know people get addicted to the, to the food network, but it's different, isn't it? Yeah. And I know I spend a lot of my money and a lot of my time trying to find nice little tasty treats and find chocolates and whatnot, but it's still different. It's still, it's still different, right? C.S. Lewis has this great place where he talks about, you know, imagine you went to this, you, you went to this little village and, um, you know, you went into this club and all the, the lights are down, dim down low, and there's a stage and there's a curtain and you hear the music, dum, dum, da, dum, dum, you know, and they open up the, the curtain and there's a, you know, a hamburger. And, he's, you know, and everybody's like whooping and hollering and going nuts. You know, he said, you would, you would, you know, what would you think about these people? Either they're starving, you know, or something is going on, right? 
So it's it's ludicrous, really, to think. As, as, you know, as a lot, you get a lot of messages, both from the culture and from the university and from the scholarly world, academic world, that wants to say sex is just a biological, natural thing. Therefore, you should just enjoy it to the fullest. God says no. And you know, in the deepest part of your being, that God is right. And all the so-called academics are wrong. Because you know in your heart of hearts that sex connects you in a way that you think doesn't. Right? Sex, of course, like all God's good gifts, can be a powerful idol. And the reason is because it's a signpost pointing to God himself, like I said, the glory of sex. Um, and, of course, the, you know, the interesting thing is so, so much of the time we fight against things like pornography and masturbation and, you know, going too far sexually with people that we're dating or whatnot. We try and fight against that, I think, so often at just the horizontal level and just try to kill our desires or try to use our willpower to keep ourselves in check. Do you ever wonder why that doesn't work very well? It doesn't work well because what you really are longing for in all that stuff is not just a biological necessity to express yourself sexually. What you're longing for is an intimate connection. But of course, you know, one of the reasons that pornography and sexual addiction are so powerful is because we want intimacy but we don't want vulnerability. We want an intimacy that we maintain control of. It's a great illusion, right, of, of pornography, that, that you, can, you can pay to have whatever you want performed or portrayed before you. And it seems like you're in control. And of course, you find out pretty soon that you're, it's actually controlling you. Idols work that way, right? But there's this illusion that we can have a kind of intimacy, or at least a feeling of intimacy, that doesn't make me vulnerable to a broken heart. And that's really attractive, especially if you've had a broken heart, or if you've had friends that had broken hearts and you don't even want to go down that road at all. But the fact is, intimacy and vulnerability go together. And unfortunately, in a fallen world, unfortunately, in a fallen world, often that intimacy you know, our vulnerability gets taken advantage of. I know that. But the, the way back is not just to try to disconnect from God. See, here, what's so fascinating is we try and work here on this level just, you know, with accountability groups or, you know, different things, which may, you know, may help at some level. But the real issue is, are you connecting intimately with God? In other words, you know, if you, if you are not connecting intimately with God, then what you will do with sex is you will either de you know, denounce it or you will deify it. If you're not connecting with God, you will try and shut your heart off to all intimacy whatsoever or you will expect sex on this earth to give you everything that you were made for. And, and, and most people are, are, are you know, you know, kind of going back and forth between those two things or fully in one of those two camps never knowing that the real, the real way that healing is going to come is to have for that connection between God, with God, that intimate connection with God to be reestablished. Because it's what's driving, it's what's driving these other things. And it breaks my heart to see so many people, you know, you know often, you know, feeling like, I don't want to feel things. But yet I, I kind of feel alive when I'm masturbating. 
and not see there's a connection and that you can't just you can't just stop that. There's also got to be a healing and why why is there no why can't you feel things? Why is there no intimate connection with God? The two go together. Unless you know what it means to be naked and vulnerable before God, which means to be dependent upon his grace alone, it will really, really be difficult, if not impossible, to live as God intends sexually. Again, because it's, it's, it's this signpost, and yet if you don't have what it's pointing to, you're going to try and make do with the signpost, right? How do we use sex? We misuse it all the time, don't we? We, couples use it as a shortcut to intimacy. It's interesting if you've ever dated somebody and you've struggled physically, how often those struggles get worse when you're not communicating well. And you might think, well, it's strange. You'd think that when we're communicating really well, then we'd have our most trouble. And you actually have trouble then, too. Because, you know, if you're married at one level, like relationally or, um, what am I saying, emotionally, if you're completely connected emotionally to somebody you're dating that you haven't really committed to yet, it makes it seem like, well, all those other vulnerabilities should come right along with it. But also, it's interesting sometimes how when you're not communicating well at all, in marriage or outside of marriage can be a really dangerous time because it, it promises, sex promises a shortcut to intimacy. A shortcut to intimacy, a, you know, when we can't communicate any other way. This lady, Mary Calderon, says in one of her books that girls often play at sex for which they're not ready because, this, she's talking about teenagers, because fundamentally what she wants is love. And the boy plays at love for which he's not ready because what he wants is sex. That's a, that's a recipe for disaster. And probably if you've dated very much, you've experienced that disaster. Um, people that are wanting two different things. Um, so, some people use sex to feel alive or to feel in control. I talked about that a little bit. Again, you know, masturbation, pornography, all those ultimately are connecting, they're not connecting you to anything Whereas sex is about connecting you. Is masturbation a big deal? Well, it's not as big a deal probably as you think it is. I can't tell you how many times I meet with students who, you know, whether or not they've masturbated that day is their sole criteria for whether they're growing as a Christian. And Satan would love to lie to us that way and say, it matters more than whether you love justice, mercy, you know, uh, or all those other things that the Bible says are more important. It's really easy for it to become this all-consuming kind of thing. And, and the, 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 the difficulty with it, the way it's such a catch-22, is you feel so ashamed. And the more you feel ashamed, the more you feel disconnected from God, the more you're going to look for that intimacy somewhere else. And it's just this vicious cycle. But God comes to the rescue. You realize the gospel is God comes to the rescue. And God comes and he says, I made you for an intimate, vulnerable relationship, and I am committed to it, and I am bringing it to you. To be a Christian is to understand that God desires and is committed to an intimate relationship with you. He's not satisfied with you just knowing about him. He's not satisfied with you just keeping the rules. This is why it's so important that you know that God is a jealous God. Did that ever freak you out? God is a jealous God. How is that helpful to know? How is that a comforting thing? It's a very comforting thing. It means that God is after your heart and he won't share it with another. That's good news because when you begin to understand what God is committed to, then you get a little bit of a picture of the future that's in store for you. 
And it's good to know because in this broken world, isn't it good to know that God is committed to giving you this intimate satisfaction, this delight that he made you for. It's coming. It's coming. And you can, and you can, you can even get foretaste of it here and now. It's so great. You know, there were, I, I think of this story about C.S. Lewis one time. A little, little kid wrote to him and was concerned that he loved Aslan more than Jesus. It was really concerning this little boy. And he, so he wrote this letter to, to C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis wrote him back and said, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. What you love about Aslan is, is, is where you see Jesus coming through him. The things you love about Aslan are Jesus. I think there's an analogy. Don't, don't worry about loving sex so much, too much. Because what you love through it, it you're, you're experiencing something of what God has made you for. And it says in another place, the problem with us is not that our desires are too strong. Christians are always going around trying to kill their desires. The problem is our desires are too weak. We're too easily satisfied. Stir up your desires. Why would you be satisfied for bread that doesn't fill you up? Why would you be satisfied with the kind of stuff that we try and fill ourselves up with? Right? Isaiah says in chapter 44 that, you know, the one who's pursuing an idol is, is like trying to feed on ashes. I've never eaten ashes, but I don't think it would fill you up very well. Do you? And yet that's what we try to do all the time. And then we try and convince ourselves that we're content. You know, there's a lot of other things. You know, I could say romance or love. I think that's a whole, whole other issue. I don't think the only pornography that's out there is on the Internet or is put out by Playboy or Hustler or all those places. I think romance novels, there's all kinds of things that really distort and twist what God intended for sexuality and for love. And I can't tell you how, how many times I'm just so torn up over the fact that people, you know, dating associate the adrenaline rush with love and then think they've fallen out of love because they never knew what love was all about. There's so many lies that our culture tells us about sex and about love. The Puritans used to marry to fall in love. They said that all the time. The way to fall in love is to get married. Now, I'm not saying they're right. And I know that, that probably everybody here says, oh, I don't like that. All the girls at least saying, I don't like that. And, and yet, here's the interesting thing. How can you prove that they're wrong from the Bible? How can you prove they're wrong from the Bible? All I'm saying is we so quickly and easily adopt the views of our culture without being critical at all. And it wasn't but three or four hundred years ago that people looked at it very differently, which, which just should give us pause to say that the way we think about it today may not be true, may not be right. Have you ever just been just astounded by somebody? Have you ever met somebody who's had an arranged marriage? And, and you know, it's hard for us to even imagine that that could be a good thing. And yet, you know, the majority of people in the majority of cultures the majority of world history have been arranged marriages. I, I, you know, it's, in, it's fascinating to think about. We have these ideas that, you know, true love is this, and it can only be in this context. And I just say, I don't know. I don't know. I think we believe a lot of silly, idolatrous ideas about that kind of stuff. Well, what about you? As we come to a conclusion here. 
if you've misused sex, and you know, believe me, everybody in this room has misused sex. Everybody in this room. You need to understand that real healing is possible. There's no sin that's beyond the grace of God. I remember um, hearing a story of a, of a young pastor who one time was counseling somebody who was just, this, this girl was just, you know, just torn up and she, he couldn't get to, what, you know, what's the issue? And finally, she told him this story about how she aborted a baby in her teenage years. And, and not to, to be crap, just the way that, there's a point to the story I think is just fascinating. He, he was kind and compassionate, but, it, but eventually she's just weeping and weeping. He said, you know, it's not the first time that you've killed somebody. And she was like, what do you mean? The Bible says that you put Jesus on the cross, that you crucified him. And while he was being crucified, he prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So there is nothing that Jesus can't forgive. If Jesus can forgive you for nailing him to the cross, he can forgive anything. Now, this is fascinating. Israel, Israel is the only ancient society that regarded sexual sin as a sin not just against persons, but against God himself. But it is not beyond his ability to forgive. Why do you think Jesus was tortured? Listen, Jesus was tortured because sin is a big deal. But when he said it was finished, he meant it. And when he was risen from the dead, it was God confirming that Jesus fully paid for sin. Believe that. And you see, it's important that you understand that because it's grace. Titus 2 says, it's grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Which means if you have any hope of living more holy in this area, it's only going to be as you understand more and more the grace of the gospel. Legalism doesn't teach you to say no to ungodliness. It pretends to, but it doesn't really, because it doesn't get at your heart. Grace and understanding that Jesus did this for me, that Jesus, as I said at the beginning, Jesus gave up perfect intimacy with his Father so that I could have it. Jesus, who didn't deserve to lose that intimacy, We've all given our intimacy away to other things and to other people. We don't deserve it. We don't have any righteousness that we can come to God and say, I, I'd like to buy some, of, some intimacy with you, and here's what I have to offer you. Well, I haven't done this, and I haven't done that, and I've done a really good job with this. You don't have enough righteousness to buy intimacy with God. But God comes to you and gives it to you as a free gift. And whenever you're wrestling and struggling and thinking, I don't have intimacy in my life and I need to get it somewhere, it's only going back and remembering what you have that you got freely from God that will help you say no to all these false promises that promise intimacy without consequence. It's grace that changes you. If you're struggling with stuff, listen, you need help. The Bible says, confess your sins to one another that you would be healed. Don't, don't wrestle with this stuff in the dark. Talk to me. Talk to Wendy. Talk to Carissa. Talk to Robert. Talk to your friends. Start with that. Ask them to pray for you. 
last, last point, I'm not going to talk about dating, you can talk, you can read that. But this last point, Proverbs 21, back to our text, and I wonder where, where do I go from that? In, in, in verse 21, it has this really fascinating little phrase. Now I've lost my first page. Oh, here it is. Yeah. It says, for a man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his path. God examines all his path. Here's um, the, the, the Hebrew word there used for path is the word for a rut made by a wagon wheel. In other words, what God is saying is, when God looks at you and he looks at, at the way we live out our sexuality, understand this, that your sexuality and the way you express it create ruts or trenches in your heart. That, 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 that you tend to run back down those same paths. So don't treat this stuff lightly. I don't think you do. Look around the room. I, I don't think anybody treats this stuff very lightly. But understand, it's no wonder it's a powerful thing. Because it's, it's, it's opening up. It's opening up you to what you were made for. Therefore, it's so important to understand what God is talking about. Naomi Wolf, who's a feminist writer, she actually, I heard, became a Christian not too long ago, wrote a, a book called The Beauty Myth that everybody really should read about the way beauty is, is so destructive, our, our ideas of beauty and our culture. But she wrote an article I read a couple of years ago called The Porn Myth. And she said, fascinating, you know, when the Internet, you know, started, you know, really taking off, there were a lot of feminists that were very concerned about free access to pornography, and they were very concerned in particular that it would create this whole group of men who would just be these raging sexaholics, and you would see rape go up and all these things go up. And she said, actually, the Internet has had, you know, a huge impact on pornography. We all know that. It's had a huge effect on sexuality, but it's had just the opposite effect that people were concerned about. Instead of making a whole group of men who are raging, you know, sexual fanatics and fiends who just have to have more and more sex, it's actually created a whole class of men who aren't moved by anything that's not airbrushed. That there's this sense in which a continual promise with no deliverance, sexual stimulation without real intimacy and connection, has very damaging effects on us. I, I, all I can say is we need to get the pain and the brokenness of our world on our hearts. We can't be complacent as a Christian community about this stuff in our own community. Don't just look away if your friends are involved in stuff that you know is damaging them. How can you? Don't just look away. You, who will give them a life-giving rebuke? Who will give you a life-giving rebuke? Who will speak to you? Don't, don't, don't look upon this stuff lightly. Our world is so broken. And we know why. But we're so caught up sometimes in trying to figure out what you can do and what you can't do. And so caught up in trying to proclaim our self-righteousness that we would never do that. That we get, we get cut out of the conversations. And we need to be in those conversations. We need to be open and honest that we are broken people, that we don't have it all together. But we know the one who can bring healing, and we know why the brokenness 
They're so broken. So we know how to pray for ourselves and for our friends. We know the kinds of things that we need to speak. And all I can say is, please, would we be the body of Christ to one another? Would we take this more seriously, the way we think about sexuality and what really matters in our Christian community? The Christian community should be the one place where you're not judged first upon what you look like. But we're a long way from there. And that should break our heart and cause us to cry out to the Lord. So let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that in spite of our pitiful record with regard to this stuff, Lord, that you are still committed to us. You still love us. You still forgive us. But Lord, you want to change us. You want to change this world. You didn't create this world to be a place where people would misuse each other sexually. You created sex to teach us about your love, not to make it more difficult for us to understand your love. And yet, for so many people, even people in this room, experiences with sex have made it more difficult to know about your intimacy. And I pray, Lord, that by your sovereign power, you would break through that. That you would bring healing and peace that passes understanding. That you would rekindle desire and longing for intimacy. And Lord, that we would that we would taste and experience that you are a lover, a God who is not content with just an intellectually abstract relationship, but Lord, you marry yourself to us. We pray, Lord, that we begin to understand and to experience more of what that's about so that our passions would be, would be given to, to what you made them for. We pray, Lord, that we wouldn't walk out of this room feeling guilty because, Lord, your blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Help us to believe that, to know that, to speak that to one another. But, Lord, may we be sobered and may we be hopeful that as, as, as much as we misuse sex, Lord, you promise that it's a shadow, a foretaste, of something that is so good awaiting us that we can hardly even get our imagination around it. Lord, help us to live with real longing. And we pray this in Jesus' name.